Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best literature. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, and PhD in Spanish and French literature. A couple of quick housekeeping uh, items before we dive into Poor Things by Alistair Gray, which I cannot wait to tackle. Um, first, if you have not checked out the Fox page Instagram, you should definitely do that. There's some good content on there, but also there are uh, the occasional weekend giveaway. Very simple. You just make a comment. I draw a name from all the people who've made comments. And then I send you like an incredible care package with just like sometimes a book, sometimes not, maybe like a little candle. I don't know, a little chocolate, um, some lip balm, who knows, a really cool pencil, an excellent Japanese pen. Who knows what might be coming at you? Um, I love doing this. I'm not even sure why I love it so much, uh, but you should check out the Instagram for that reason. Also, if you want a slightly more immersive experience and you are now listening to the podcast, you should check out the YouTube channel. Those of you who are watching the YouTube channel can see that I am wearing um, a blouse today. It's actually the same one that I was wearing um, when I recorded the Madame Bovary lecture, which seems somehow kind of fitting. Um, Madame Bovary being uh, published around the same time that this Poor Things takes place. I also like to think um, that these kind of ruffles and gathers and whatnot are a little bit reminiscent of the most um, insane outfit here that Emma uh, Stone is wearing. Emma Stone? That sounds so weird. I do think that's her name. Oh my gosh, she's like one of my favorites. But um, yes, I think that is her name. Uh, she's wearing an incredible outfit here on the cover of Poor Things. I'm generally not a fan of like the movie tie-in cover, but this one I really do like very much. Uh, but so generally speaking, uh, the YouTube channel has, you know, it, it shows you maybe like a homemade outfit or something that I have coordinated with the book, but also throughout the lecture, I will kind of feather in some images that are often quite orthogonal. You know, it's not just like a picture of the author, although you'll have that sometimes too. Um, um, but also, you know, if you're listening to the podcast and that's making you happy, then thank you very much for listening because let me tell you, I am really loving putting together these lectures for you all. Okay, as always, uh, I want to begin today with this question of why we would read this book. So um, in this case, Poor Things by Alistair Gray, the reason why I came across it is because of the movie. This happens to me often. If there is a novel to be had, I really um, sometimes really enjoy the idea of, of seeing the visual thing first or reading the novel first and then really digging in to the adaptation or the source material. In this case, um, I'm recording this at the beginning of January and Poor Things is not available on Netflix. Um, and honestly, I'm so lazy these days that I hardly ever make it to the movie theater. I'm also an enormous fan of Yorgos Lanthimos who did The Favorite and he did The Lobster and he is obviously the director of Poor Things and I think is being, there's a lot of anticipation about Poor Things and Yorgos, who is a Greek uh, movie developer and director and whatnot, creator, um, a lot of talk about uh, Oscar nominations. But I have to say, I was absolutely blown away by this book. I'm having this strange thing happen to me right now where right at the beginning of the year, I'm reading three things kind of back to back. One is The Feast by Margaret Kennedy, then Poor Things by Alistair Gray, and then Daniel Mason's North Woods. 
And all of them are so interesting because each has a structure that is unique and is incredibly well done, but they, they share a lot of similarities in the sense that each of them has a structure that's very collage-like. It's very kind of, it's like a whole melding, like a whole pastiche of all of these different kind of textural elements. So um, Margaret Kennedy's The Feast, it's just, I mean, honestly, it might be the perfect novel. It is so, so good. And that has a really interesting framing device, just like Poor Things. And then it has this incredible plot and it has all of these kind of different textural elements. We have, you know, sermons and hymns and, and diary entries and letters. It's just this absolutely amazing kind of mosaic of all of these different forms of writing. And we have a similar thing here with poor things. In the case of Daniel Mason's North Woods, we have, I think it's woods, plural, um, but it, we have kind of this, this same structure in terms of like different textural elements. It does not have the same framing device that we see in both The Feast by Margaret Kennedy and also in Poor Things by Alistair Gray. So I think that you should read this book maybe even before you see the movie, or if you saw the movie and you loved the movie, um, then you will definitely love the book, I think. Um, it is an incredible, incredible novel. I had very high expectations uh, because I had read a little bit about it before I dove in, and my expectations were so fully exceeded. Like, I mean, that does happen to me quite often, but I do have very high standards, as you all know, and Alistair Gray blew me away. So um, why is this novel so incredible? It is incredibly inventive. It is really challenging uh, the sort of formal elements of a novel. Right from the very beginning of the book, even in the frontis matter, which is just like all of that boilerplate stuff, um, we already have Alistair Gray kind of playing with all of these kind of formal elements that you there's an incorporation of images that Alistair Gray, who has a background in mural making and design, that he did. I have to say, I'm not a huge fan of the images. If you're on the YouTube channel, um, I'll, I'll throw a couple up right now. Uh, but they're 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 fine. I like I like the concept of them. I like the name. I like the the way that they sort of feel like a formal portrait. Um, but I did not love the idea of having an image um, such as it is because it's kind of a woodblock kind of a or a linotype or some kind of something. Um, I didn't really love the idea of, of a, um, a, a, like a concrete image that in some ways was not in keeping uh, with the images that I have in my head. I have to say I do have the images in my head are very close to the movie trailer, which is phenomenal. So I have a lot of like Mark Ruffalo happening in my head, which is always nice. And, uh, you know, some Emma Stone and, and uh, uh, Rami Youssef, a couple of different people, very happily taken up space uh, as I am reading through Poor Things. So it's formally very inventive in a way that I found totally engaging. It's also really, really brainy. Sometimes very brainy work can feel kind of like a little too much or a little precious or a little kind of overwrought or like super elitist. And this did not feel like that. I really enjoyed the kind of intellectual rigor that Alistair Gray brings to the book. There are also some amazing um, echoes of Frankenstein. And in the fall uh, at the Foxed page, we did a little uh, deep dive into Frankenstein. And so I talked quite a bit about um, Mary Shelley and Percy Shelley and how he, uh, you know, went in there and, and did a little tinkering with her prose in ways that I don't think was necessarily doing her any favors. 
but I really love all of the echoes that we have in Poor Things of Frankenstein, which is something that we will get to. You don't have to have read Frankenstein recently to appreciate these echoes. They're, they're um, really interesting and well done, uh, but I'll, I'll sort of hold your hand as it were. Um, and then it's an incredibly uh, like feminist novel in lots of ways. And feminist in the sense that like there, there's some real challenges that, that are made to just sort of like how we think of women and sexual desire, how we think of women and, you know, their subservience to men. The, the book takes place in the middle of the 19th century. So you definitely have, you know, women at that point in time, um, you know, beginning of the Victorian era, Victorian era being kind of I always think 1850 to 1900. Um, it was an, an era when there was a lot of repression and not great for women and a lot of like prudery and a lot of, um, you know, just sort of like women really being sort of uh, put on a pedestal and kind of, you know, shoved into corners, that sort of thing. And this book absolutely flies in the face of, of the idea of women as just being kind of ornaments or as being, um, you know, simply there to like birth a child or two and then like have a Victorian rest cure and then die. So I really enjoyed this kind of um, innovative and unique approach to feminist uh, characters that we see with Alistair Gray. It, it gets a tiny bit problematic for me because I think some of it is a male fantasy. Uh, certainly some of the sexual appetite stuff. I feel I'm, I'm always like, okay, wait, this is a man writing about what he, you know, writing about what he perceives as sort of feminist strength and independence. But when it gets really sexual, I'm like, okay, wait, maybe this is just like the male fantasy about women as just like really having a lot of sexual appetite. So that's something that we will get to. It also is just this really fun romp. It is not difficult to read and it is an absolute joy. It is so funny and there's so much kind of absurdity and so much levity in it. And the tone of this third person narrator, whether that that the author is adopting kind of like an epistolary stance and we're reading a letter or whether um, it's a third person narrator who's very far away and sort of talking about things in big sweeping general terms or whether it's a closer third person narrator who is entering into the mind of Bella Baxter or or any of these other characters it's this incredible combination of real intellect and real sort of prowess and a lot of really interesting information that is also um, just told in this really entertaining and funny and, and kind of light way even when the topics are very dark that I just found so incredibly compelling so uh, buckle up because we are going to have a really good time digging into why it is amazing. So those of you who like an agenda, we always uh, do a very quick little bio on the writer. There's kind of a meta quality to the novel. Meta simply meaning that the novel is kind of conscious of its own construction. So we have um, a, a little inclusion of Alistair Gray. He is supposedly the editor of, of this kind of volume of all of these different pieces of information, different manuscripts and letters and whatnot. So um, we have kind of a funny little tongue-in-cheek uh, bio that we will be reading. Then um, we're going to dive in. We're going to talk about the uh, title. We're going to talk about the artwork. We're going to go through different beginnings because it is a book uh, because it has a framing device, which is kind of this like um, this structure uh, that, that sort of we have this manuscript in the middle, but we have um, like an introduction of, to the manuscript um, at the beginning. And, and 
actually quite a bit of uh, sort of framing stuff at the end. So we have the main story of Bella Baxter's life, but we have these kinds of, um, you know, discussions of the manuscript before and after. We are going to talk about Frankenstein and this kind of suspension of disbelief. We're then going to dive into the prose. So this is prose that is so, so well done. It is so entertaining. And we're going to kind of pick apart a little bit looking at the fantasy element, looking at plot, looking at language, and essentially just looking at word choice and the prose itself, because it's it's the kind of prose that really rewards some digging into. And then we will close by looking at the end of the novel. There's some real departures too from the movie, and um, it, it's kind of like we have a couple of different big twists in the book, and then there's a, a final twist that is not actually part of the movie that really undermines the whole entire novel in a way that I found so impressive and interesting. So um, I'm gonna we're gonna discuss a tiny bit, although again I have not actually seen the movie, but I spoke with my my uh, youngest son who saw it in the theaters and um, they do not in fact in the movie there isn't this kind of final turn that the novel takes. So we're gonna um, dive in to the biography. So this is on page six. That's gonna be a little test of your uh, Roman numerals. Um, I think I mentioned this at one point on the Fox page, but I was totally alarmed because one of my children, who are like very educated people, um, I realized that their high school had failed them or their grammar school, whatever, uh, because they, uh, you know, not a lot of Roman numeral reading happening in my children's lives. So I think they actually would bridle at that. They would say that they, in fact, know exactly how they work and maybe they do. But what I saw was not great evidence of uh, familiarity with uh, Roman numerals. But on page six here, lowercase um, vi, in uh, the introduction, this is before we have even gotten to the book, and we're not really diving in, we're just looking at the bio. It says the following, putting on the glasses. Okay, Alistair Gray, the editor, was born in Ridry, Glasgow, 1934, the son of a cardboard box manufacturer and part-time hill guide. He obtained a Scottish Education Department Diploma in Design and Mural Painting and is now a fat, balding, asthmatic, married pedestrian who lives by writing and designing things. So I like this. I like it. It's funny. It's tongue-in-cheek. I also like the kind of commitment here to the bit, which is that Alistair Gray is the editor pulling together all of these um, sort of extant manuscripts that he has come across. They're actually given to him by a historian friend, supposedly. So I, I, I'm kind of a sucker for a framing device like this. Another very famous uh, framing device uh, example is the Scarlet Letter, where uh, there's, there's a figure there who has supposedly found this manuscript up in the attic of this meeting house. And in Frankenstein, we also have a framing device where we have, um, you know, the, the Dr. Frankenstein is telling his story to uh, this sailor captain guy who I cannot remember his name right now, but they're stuck in the ice. Dr. Frankenstein is telling the story to this guy, and then this guy is kind of reporting what their conversation was. So what we have here is Alistair Gray saying, okay, I'm just the editor, and this historian friend gave me all of these um, sort of, you know, pages of information, and the, the bulk of it being this story, this book about Bella Baxter, but also a bunch of letters and supporting um, sort of information that he is then going to edit. I also like the levity and the humor 
I mean, things like his father being a cardboard box manufacturer and his mother being a part-time hill guide, I like those details. I mean, clearly we're, we're kind of leaning into the working class Glaswegian here um, and certainly leaning into the Scottish part. There's quite a bit of tension between Scotland and, and England in the book in ways that I found really interesting and, and just kind of awesome. Um, but we also have this idea of him as being a fat, asthmatic, older person who is married, which it all kind of checks out. So um, we actually can look at the at the dedication, which is right next to this cute little um, bio. And I love the font in the, um, for those of you on the YouTube channel, it's like a really large, very plain, simple um, sans serif uh, font and very large letters that says, For my wife, Mora. I think that's how you pronounce Mora. It's M-O-R-A-G. So it turns out that um, Alistair Gray met Mora when they were both in the university and she was very taken by the murals in, I feel like it was like their local chip shop, which really makes his murals sound like not as big a deal as they actually are. It might not have been a chip shop, although why would I have that in my brain if not? So they meet and um, I guess the rest is history. She is a librarian. So she is certainly someone who appreciates literature and appreciates, um, presumably, they were married, you know, for a long time. And uh, presumably, uh, you know, she appreciates what her husband is up to. Okay, so now we're gonna take kind of a step back and dive in to the work itself. Okay, um, we like to just, you know, uh, say here at the Fox page that if you want to get more out of your reading, you want to have a richer reading experience, all you need to do is pay attention. So one of the things that I like to pay attention to is cover art, with the caveat, of course, that most uh, writers have nothing to do with the cover art. Really, in fact, I mean, you know, we have kind of a nominal, like, you know, uh, what, what's that called? Um, when you veto, you maybe have like a little bit of veto power, but thankfully there are a lot of marketing departments who are doing things well. I, I like this cover okay. I of course love my Emma Stone being on here. I like this crazy uh, outfit that she's got going. I don't really love like the weird, I understand what they're trying to do here, but I don't really love the, the, the sort of small version of her in this bigger body. It just doesn't quite work for me, but I really love the font. Um, this seems like a little bit of a trendy font, but it's really working for me. Um, I really like the, um, weirdly, like I like the idea of this as being a tie-in to a motion picture because there is incredible synergy, I think, between the two. It's just a remarkable novel, and uh, from what I can tell in the trailer, it is also a remarkable movie. So I like the cover. Um, the title is interesting to me. So Poor Things, um, when I am reading a book, I... I it's so funny, I have like this little frisson when, when I come across the title of a book in the text itself. So for example, in The Feast with Margaret Kennedy, which shares so much with this, The Feast, which is the title, pops up a bunch of times during the text at important times, and it is an important sort of plot element. I really like that, and I did not see poor things kind of pop out anywhere in the book itself, which is fine. But I like um, I like the title. I like the idea of um, of like there's a certain sort of like oh poor things that you can absolutely imagine Bella Baxter saying. So she's someone um, she's whimsical and interesting, and and the sort of conceit which you all know is that she um, has a child's brain. Uh, but it has like a, an adult kind of body. So, and we're going to discuss how that happens. But this idea of, of this kind of simple kind of childlike wonder is what kind of permeates the book. 
So this idea of sympathy and curiosity and this idea of sort of like, oh, poor things. For me, that is a very sort of fitting way to think about the way that Bella Baxter is seeing some elements of the world. It's also, um, I don't know if this is uh, coming through in the movie itself, but there is a ton of really important um, socialist rhetoric that I really loved in this book. In fact, there are a couple of um, of passages where you have a, a person introduced who is very much a foil for our Bella Baxter. And Bella, who is, you know, this kind of innocent, even though she looks like a grown woman, she's asking questions about, um, you know, totalitarianism and about dictatorship and about social inequality and about, you know, wealth gaps and whatnot. And it's so excellent because it could be heavy handed and yet it is absolutely not. So this idea of poor things is really underscoring this kind of heavy duty socialist um, sort of, I don't want to say propaganda because I think that's bad. And I actually think that this is a really um, potent and I think very effective and very kind of subtle, uh, like a little advertisement for like a little bit more social equality. So I really enjoyed that and the title definitely pulls our attention toward this idea of social inequality and, you know, certain and having sympathy for people who are maybe not uh, quite as well off as as one is. So that's my thought on the title. Then we're going to go ahead and open up the book. We've got some nice, you know, like people writing blurbs in the front here. And then even at the very beginning, we have, again, this kind of meta feel, meaning that the book is sort of um, playing with the idea of who is the author and, um, you know, what what makes a novel a novel and what things are true and what things are fiction. So we have uh, Poor Things, episodes from the early life of Archibald McCandless, MD, Scottish public health officer, edited by Alistair Gray. So we have this kind of subtitle that, um, you know, happily is not on the front. It would be kind of a, a mouthful and would, I think, detract from, from this, this like sort of bold title here. But we have this thing about how this is going to be um, the story of Alistair, I mean, of Archibald uh, McCandless. So that, it's an important way that we are sort of focusing our attention, but then there's this kind of somewhat playful and, and formally inventive idea that it is being edited by Alistair Gray. So there's, again, that kind of meta quality to it. Um, the spelling of Alistair too, it's L-A-S-D-A-I-R, not like the British. And I think that's a very important distinction because again, this Alistair, you know, Gray person, the author, um, makes quite a bit of his Scottish, uh, you know, sort of heritage. And then we have um, this kind of, we're not going to go through all of this stuff, but we have um, Frentice Matter here. So this is the boilerplate stuff that he's really playing with. It's really interesting to read this, um, you know, surprisingly on some level. And I knew it would be because uh, he's, he's given us this signpost here of like what is kind of like a piece of ephemera, like this little piece of paper that is overlaid over this boilerplate stuff in a sense of like, you know, this is a scrapbook and, and, and it is worth reading because it's different than your sort of average novel. It is important here, we have the publication date. It was published in 1992, which is to say that the novel came out in 1992. Of course, it um, it concerns the middle of the 19th century, but 1992, um, it's just an interesting time. You know, 1989 was the fall of the Berlin Wall, so you had a lot of change at that point. Um, 
and so so it's kind of this idea of 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 situating it a little bit in the early 90s in terms of where Alistair Gray who at that point would have been was born in 34 oh my gosh 60 ish you know so it's 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 good to sort of have that a little bit in mind one of the things that we come back to often here at the Fox page is this idea that especially with a challenging text, it's a really good idea to pay close attention to the opening of a book. So whether that's the first paragraph, the first couple of sentences, the first chapter, the first section, you know, whatever, whatever you really want to focus on, it's a good idea to slow down and pay attention because especially with a challenging text, an author will often give you some real um, guidance about where you should focus your attention, what kind of language is going to be used, tone, all of these different things to really sort of get your footing as you are moving forward. But it's interesting in this case because we have this unique structure, which again, we have this kind of mosaic of all of these different texts. And so we have actually several beginnings, which is delightful because of course, as we are going through them, we also will be talking about the amazing prose. Okay, so we're gonna dive into this idea of this introduction. This is on page nine. Um, Roman numeral nine, because this is the introduction that is presumably written by the editor, editor, doing some quotation mark, um, you know, fingers here, um, who is in fact also Alistair Gray, who is the person who has invented this whole entire universe that is the novel. So here on page nine, this is the beginning of the introduction, and this is when um, we're sort of getting into a little bit more of the meat of the manuscript, like an explanation of what is to come in terms of the manuscript. So this is Alistair Gray, the editor, talking. The doctor who wrote this account of his early experiences died in 1911, and readers who know nothing about the daringly experimental history of Scottish medicine will perhaps mistake it for a grotesque fiction. Those who examine the proofs given at the end of this introduction will not doubt that in the final week of February 1881, at 18 Park Circus, Glasgow, a surgical genius used human remains to create a 25-year-old woman. So you have this idea here of, of uh, Alistair Gray really doubling down on the fact that this is true. And this is the kind of, I, I love this. So when you have um, someone who is uh, like objective enough, a little bit away from the, uh, you know, the, the source material itself, and someone who's saying to you like, this is true and giving you context for it, it really does lend a lot of credibility to what is coming. And obviously, you know, you can have your thoughts one way or the other about whether or not in 1880 someone in fact made a woman a 25 year old woman out of like you know a corpse but you have the sense here that our editor is really convinced and that we are meant to suspend disbelief we're going to come back to this with Frankenstein but we are meant to think that this is in fact true um, so again, uh, and I love already the tone is a little bit light and a little bit funny. This idea of um, readers who know nothing about the daringly experimental history of Scottish medicine will perhaps mistake it for a grotesque fiction. So this idea of a grotesque fiction, I mean, it's definitely an echo of Frankenstein, which was seen as sort of grotesque at the time. And the idea of kind of this gothic thing about like creepiness and bodies and death and um, reanimation and stormy nights and, you know, thunderbolts, all of that kind of stuff 
is kind of, um, it's alluded to here with this idea of the grotesque fiction. But the idea about the daringly experimental history of Scottish medicine, I don't know anything about the, the history of Scottish medicine, but the idea of daringly experimental, I think is so enticing because it's a little bit tongue in cheek and it's a little bit overstated, but in a way that also is, is asking us to, to, to believe in a way that is, I just think is just great. Okay. And then um, we have after the, um, the, the sort of construction of the 25 year old woman, we have this first paragraph ends with the following statement. The local historian, Michael Donnelly, disagrees with me. It was he who salvaged the text, which is the biggest part of the book, so I must say how he found it. So this is like, I mean, on some level, this is like the oldest trick in the book, but I really like the way that this is, this is sort of developing because we have, um, we have Alistair Gray here who is saying like, this is the truth. Like, you're not gonna believe it, but this is like what happened and this is because Scottish medicine is so amazing. And then he has kind of this naysayer who is Michael Donnelly. So he's introducing someone who is a foil, like someone who's going to argue against Alistair Gray. But Alistair Gray, in fact, is going, um, you know, he's the one who's sort of in control of the whole thing. But he's making this very good argument by saying, like by being upfront about the fact that uh, that Michael Donnelly does not believe it. And so we, we are understanding that this is somewhat controversial, but we also know that we are meant, in fact, to suspend disbelief and to believe what Alistair Gray is telling us. So that is the beginning of the introduction. So we have that first beginning, and then we have another beginning. So this is the beginning of the actual book that Michael Donnelly found, and it is dedicated, in fact, uh, this way. This is the one that's by Archibald McCandless. To she who makes my life worth living. So, um, you know, high stakes, a lot of, you know, devotion, a lot of passion here. And then we have this really robust table of contents, which I like. Um, and actually, a lot of the images that are included uh, that are like, um, you know, these, these line drawings of, of uh, anatomy or of shells or of coins or whatever, um, you know, whatever it is that he's drawing. I like those. There's some sort of more bold uh, uh, portraits that, that speak to me less, but I do, I do like this. Um, this long table of contents, though, is preparing the reader for the way that this novel functions very much like a compendium of a bunch of different things. And in fact, um, even this is the table of contents of the book that Michael Donnelly finds. But then we also have this framing device of other uh, pieces of information on either side. So this is the beginning of the book that Michael Donnelly finds. You've got this really um, amazing uh, illustration here of the spine. Some of the illustrations are also really gross, uh, which I think is also very effective. And it sort of pushes against this idea of like, is this book true, quote unquote true, or is it a grotesque fiction? So diving in um, to this, this book here that is written by Archibald McCandless that was found by Michael Donnelly, we have the following. Chapter one, making me. Like most farm workers in those days, my mother distrusted banks. When death drew near, she told me her life savings were in a tin trunk under the bed and muttered, take it and count it. So then we go on, and this is told from the perspective, in fact, of, of, uh, of Archibald McCandless. So he's beginning, you know, with this thing about his mother and money. Money is an important thing that, that sort of flows through the whole entire thing, as is maternity. 
we're not going to have much time to talk about either of those. But so then we have this whole story that actually feels very much like the framing device in Frankenstein of um, Archibald McCandless and uh, this this sort of production, um, the, the meeting when he meets the, the, the sort of wild doctor who in fact makes Bella Baxter. Turns out, of course, that Bella Baxter is the woman to whom, uh, you know, his, his whole life is devoted. So now we are going to move on and we're going to talk about the structure of the book. So you have the framing device and then we have the kind of the book, which is, I don't know, 230 pages, this manuscript by Archibald McCandless. After that, we have a whole kind of appendix and notes that are really interesting. So um, when we are looking at literature here at the Fox page, it's, it's one thing to sort of say, okay, this is a unique structure. Then it's very important, if we can, to ask, so what? Like, what is it that Alistair Gray is wanting us to take away from this complex and really well done and well executed structure? Part of it is, um, I'm going to just answer the so what question for you. Part of it is this nature of truth versus fiction. So I love anybody who's kind of playing with the idea of, of a fictive world as being more kind of real than the actual world. I find that very, um, I find it refreshing and interesting, partially because I think any claim to something being nonfiction is, is slippery, especially when we're talking about memoir or biography. I mean, the mere selection of facts or even history with a capital H. I mean, you know, uh, I was recently with someone who was not very happy that children are not learning history in the way that they used to learn history with a capital H. And um, my thing was like, oh, okay, well, but that is history that is taught by a whole bunch of white colonial men who are largely capitalist and who are um, looking at history in a very specific way. And it is not, in fact, the history of, you know, a lot of indigenous people or of women or of domesticity. Uh, so, so it's, I mean, it's, it's again, getting us into this kind of heady thing about like what is true and what stories are true. And yes, I mean, there are verifiable facts that we can really lean pretty heavily on. But again, like even just the selection of those facts is very biased. So I love a work that is sort of playing with this idea of like, yes, this is fiction, it's made up, but there are a lot of truths in here. And Alistair Gray is, is sort of weaving a lot of truths, meaning, you know, it's Glasgow, it's a city that exists, Scotland exists, um, you know, all of these different sort of medical interventions, like we know what it is to have a cesarean section, we know what it is to, um, you know, have, have all of these different things he's talking about are things that actually happen in the world. So it's very easy to sort of start to feel like we're being presented with something that is true, even though we really do know it's a novel, um, but, but it's it's you have a very different sort of perspective on it that I really appreciate. Um, it also is such a great sort of um, like argument for the power of literature. So I spoke before a little bit about the political message and there is, it's this incredible kind of device. The corpse story is that a pregnant woman killed herself and this kind of madman Frankenstein-esque doctor took the brain of the baby, the fetus, inside the dead woman, um, and put it into the woman. And it's this great, there's like this great thing, um, talk about, oh gosh, oh my God, that really scared me. The microphone just tipped over, Whew. wow. I don't know what I thought that was, but that, wow, scary. Um, 
So the the baby, um, there's this thing he makes this whole point about how, oh, this is going to actually work so well, this like putting the, the fetus's brain into the, the woman, um, into her head, it's going to work really well because the body will not reject this brain. And so as the reader, you're like, oh, wait, oh my God, that's so smart medically. Like, okay, good. That's like really the one the one sort of like obstacle here is that maybe the body might reject this transplant and because it's part of the same body, no problem. Like the transplant's gonna like take, it's gonna work well. Not really thinking about the fact that like, you know, a brain transplant from a fetus into the mother is, uh, you know, it's slightly far-fetched, certainly in 1881 or whatever this is. So we have this sense of um, there, there are lots of things like that where he's he's sort of um, you know like presenting a qualm and then um, you know providing the answer for it like basically explaining how this is possible and it's very compelling and very very well done. But so you have this power of literature in the sense that this woman who has this baby's brain in her is is you know a, 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 has a woman's body and is capable of doing a lot of the things that women are capable of doing, but it has this entirely kind of tabula rasa, um, you know, uh, innocent, childlike wonder, and is really looking at things. Um, she's raised by Godwin, um, and th this, um, you know, he's the he's the mad scientist, and he has really instilled all of these very positive things in her. So she's she's looking at the facts of the world in you know Victorian England and Scotland. And is, and is really questioning the logic of lots of stuff in a way that is incredibly compelling because a lot of it is not logical and a lot of it is not fair and it is not just. So I think that the power of literature here is so impressive because she's so likable and quirky and funny and absurd and, and like delightful that when she begins to question some things, you're like, yeah, wait, how come, why is education hard for women to obtain? And why can't women be doctors? And why, um, you know, are doctors held in so much higher esteem than nurses who do all this important work? So she's asking all of these very potent questions. And as the reader, you're delighted to sort of be along for the ride and have these questions answered. So this power of literature is really brought to the fore given um, the structure, you know, like you really feel like maybe, I mean, you know it's not true, but but you're really kind of bought in and you've suspended disbelief, so then you're going to um, really listen to what Bella Baxter is sort of, uh, you know, what she's pushing for. There also is just this incredibly fun idea of kind of this um, melding of all of these different, uh, not only the different elements, you know, we have the introduction and we have notes, you know, critical and historical, and we have all of these different um, manuscripts that are all kind of uh, put together in this compendium, but we also have all of these intertexts. So intertexts is just a fancy word for all of the texts that are referred to by the novel uh, that are outside the novel. So for example, there's, there's a lot of overtones of Alice in Wonderland. There are tons and tons of like very clear references to Frankenstein, not by name, but certainly there are echoes of these very important pieces of literature. There's a lot of stuff um, that's like a very Pygmalion kind of thing. Um, George Bernard Shaw, who is also Irish, I mean, also Scottish. Um, my Irish obsession is, is sort of kicking in here. But George Bernard Shaw wrote a, a play, I believe it was a play, called The Importance of Being Earnest, 
which became My Fair Lady um, with Audrey Hepburn, my favorite. Um, but, but this idea of like uh, people being shaped by language and people um, making certain impressions because they speak in a certain way and this idea of sort of how you present yourself to the world as being so important. This is one of the things that, uh, that Alistair Gray is playing with a bit here because Bella Baxter with her baby brain, although she's progressing very, very quickly, she's still, she doesn't have some of the refinement that people expect. And so she makes this really strong impression in ways that are um, actually very subversive and interesting and funny. Uh, it's just incredibly well done. So in fact, on page uh, 272 and 73, um, we, have, uh, we have this reference to all of these different literary, um, you know, sort of texts that, that really inform her husband's manuscript. She says the following. You, dear reader, have now two accounts to choose between, and there can be no doubt about which is more probable. He has made a sufficiently strange story stranger still by stirring into it episodes and phrases to be found in Hogg's Suicide's grave with additional ghouleries from the works of Mary Shelley and Edgar Allan Poe. What morbid Victorian fantasy has he not filched from? I find traces of The Coming Race, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dracula, Trilby, Riders Haggard She, The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes, and, alas, Alice through the looking glass, a gloomier book than the sunlit Alice in Wonderland. He has even plagiarized work by two very dear friends, G.B. Shaw's Pygmalion and the scientific romances of Herbert George Wells. So we have H.G. Wells there. So this manuscript is in fact this, this confection that he has sort of cooked up with all of these different ingredients from all of these different literary, uh, you know, masterpieces. It's such an inventive and interesting, I mean, like, I'm just so charmed by the prose. The whole thing about, um, you know, it's, it's Alice Through the Looking Glass, which is this gloomier version of the sunlit uh, Alice in Wonderland. Those little um, adjectives describing those two books are just so excellent. Or the idea of ghoulerie's um, you know, from Edgar Allan Poe and Mary Shelley. The idea of ghoulerie's is, first of all, it's just an amazing word. We do not use it enough. Um, but it also is so telling and so evocative of this kind of gothic fiction that he uh, that, that he's really taking part in and is also sort of, um, you know, spoofing. The last thing I will say uh, about this kind of incredible structure is that it also is giving us this really interesting uh, sort of variety of visions of politics and of medicine and of science and of social reform and of men and their obsessions and women and their strengths because we have this whole cast of characters who come up against Bella Baxter and, and are really, um, you know, providing, in some cases, they're a little bit of like a straw man, you know, they're like providing an argument only for Bella Baxter to sort of rip it apart. But it's this very effective um, way to give us this whole entire kind of panoply of all of these different uh, thoughts on, you know, like Bella, Bella Baxter, when she is Bella Baxter, has certain ideas about the liberation of women and their sexual appetites and all of these different things. So now that we have um, talked a little bit about the structure, we are going to um, dive into the idea of Frankenstein. I've alluded uh, sort of briefly to this idea of the suspension of disbelief. We're going to walk through some of the similarities very briefly between Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Alistair Gray's uh, Poor Things. So 
um, it's very, uh, there, there's sort of like a lot of one for one. And the best thing about it, I think, is when you start looking at them, some of the differences are, are I think, some of the most compelling aspects of, of poor things. So in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which was published, you know, in the middle of the, of the 19th century. So that is not true. Um, oh my gosh, when was it published? I want to say 1914, maybe. Oh my gosh, that's so bad. Okay, uh, if you're watching the YouTube, I will flash the year up. If not, you're going to have to just maybe Google that because I can't look it up right now. Um, so in Frankenstein, we have this framing device where Captain Walton, the name just came to me, Captain Walton is talking to Dr. Frankenstein. They're stuck up near the Arctic Circle in the like um, iceberg locked ship. So you have this framing device of this conversation the two men are having. In, um, in that story that Dr. Frankenstein tells, he talks about reanimating this corpse. And it's a very controversial book in many ways. It's not controversial. Well, it is. It's controversial in the trans community because essentially this is this kind of medically engineered uh, creature who right from the start is seen as vile and, um, you know, just despicable and repulsive and, and just sort of awful. But it's very important to take a close look at Frankenstein to understand that the monster, I mean, again, that's like what he's referred to, but this creature that Dr. Frankenstein creates is actually good. So he begins, the creature is male in terms of his, uh, his sex, but he begins with all of these very nurturing, very kind of archetypally female uh, uh, sort of um, uh, qualities. He's very gentle. He's very empathetic. He's very caring. He's very nurturing. When he is seeing this little family in this little cottage, you know, he's bringing them firewood and he is um, listening very quietly and is being unobtrusive and, and helpful and, um, and, and sort of taking care of this little family in ways that are, are very sort of uh, maternal. But then um, when he realizes, in fact, that he is repulsive, to all human beings, he basically turns bad. So we have this idea of, of, a, of a creature who is sort of good in essence, but who is made bad by society. So in um, Alistair Gray's Poor Things, we also have this framing device. In this case, it's not a conversation so much as it is Alistair Gray. Well, it's a little bit of a, of a sort of written conversation between Alistair Gray and Michael Donnelly who is the historian who does not believe the story is true. So we also here have the reanimated corpse. In this case, there is that kind of further experiment and we have more backstory. Um, in Frankenstein, it's just that the, the doctor Frankenstein becomes obsessed with this idea of galvanizing and reanimating a corpse. In um, Poor Things, we have this idea that this woman who is pregnant um, commits suicide, and we eventually find out sort of why. Um, she, she commits suicide and drowns, and her corpse is reanimated by taking the brain of the baby. She's not sort of like um, limbs all stuck together on a body with bolts in the forehead, made famous by the movies. Um, instead, she is just like a sort of normal woman, but who has uh, her own fetus's brain in her head. So you, you have this kind of reanimation of a corpse, but it's like a little more involved, and in some ways, like a little better idea I mean, I can't believe I'm saying that, but like there is a certain amount of kind of, you're like, oh, okay, well, if the brain isn't going to be rejected by the body, then for sure that would work, which is so funny to me. It's excellent. Um, so you have this kind of, uh, it, it's sort of one step further toward uh, this idea of, of reanimating a corpse. Then 
we have this idea of this woman who, much like the Frankenstein creature, she's she's kind of this, she's very unusual. And in fact, she's very sort of good in the sense that she has no preconceived notions, no judgments, no prejudice. She is in fact um, raised by Godwin Baxter, who is like really careful to sort of raise her in ways that are, they're very sort of positive and, and very sort of um, compassionate. He is himself, Godwin Baxter is actually kind of repulsive looking and he has this very strange voice and so she's used to right from the start of her life um, you know, as this reanimated corpse with the baby brain, um, she's used to difference and she's used to compassion and she doesn't have all of our sort of um, received notions, thanks to the media, about what is beautiful and what is ugly. So she she is very much like the Frankenstein creature in the sense that, that she's a very sort of open um, and, and, and um, compassionate and uh, like very non-judgmental uh, creature. And in fact, when she runs into different people in her world travels, she really is is questioning them in ways that are really interesting, um, very much like Frankenstein's monster who is going around and having contact with a lot of different people as well. So one of the things I mentioned earlier, uh, so she is like this incredibly sexual creature. Bella Baxter is. And I like this on some level. Some of you may know that um, in a past life, I was a writer and I wrote a book about keeping your sex life alive when you have small children in the house. So um, I, I am someone who really believes in like the power of positive sexual interaction. Uh, and I'm someone who uh, believes that that like a lot of like weird puritanical repression has been very bad for our country and for people in general. So I like the idea of, of this woman and who has very healthy sexual appetites and he was really interested in sort of like you know pleasure and and physical pleasure and sensation I love all of that there just occasionally were times where I was like wait this is feeling a little bit like Alistair Gray's fantasy of like a woman who's just like always wanting to have sex. So I had a little bit of ambivalence. It would have been a little tidier for me and I could have gotten behind the whole thing a bit more if in fact uh, this whole book were written by a woman. But I still really appreciated the way that her sexual appetite um, is, is um, sort of flying in the face certainly of Victorian England and Scotland, but, but also is really speaking to this idea that female desire is not something that is perverted or crazy. In fact, that it is totally natural and that women have lots of sexual desire as well. So I want to dig a little more deeply into this idea of suspension of disbelief because this is an element that I never tire talking about where Frankenstein is concerned. So I think it's so funny when people start quibbling about parts of Frankenstein uh, that they're like, wait, that's not, there's no way that could happen. And what they quibble with is that like, when the monster is learning about uh, the the family who is living in this little uh, you know cottage, he is listening to them speak to each other and they are speaking French and so he learns French. And then he finds a copy of Milton's Paradise Lost, the monster, the creature does, out in the woods. And he basically like teaches himself all of, um, you know, English, uh, the, the English language from Paradise Lost. And people make this whole thing about like, wait, it's totally unrealistic that he would learn, uh, you know, French quickly or that he would learn English from Paradise Lost, which is so funny because, of course, you are 
suspending disbelief at the very beginning of that piece of literature when you are believing that the guy, that the Dr. Frankenstein reanimated a corpse. And I love this idea that like once you have suspended disbelief enough to think that someone could reanimate a corpse, you know, in Switzerland in, um, you know, 18, whatever it is, that, that like the rest of it is like also probably equally plausible. Like, yes, learning English from Paradise Lost is actually probably way more probable than reanimating a corpse. So I like this idea um, that, that people get kind of stuck on these different elements and are like, wait, oh, no, wait, there's no way, you know, that, that Frankenstein is going to like strangle the woman and take the, 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 the locket. You know, like people get all hung up on these things. And I'm like, OK, wait, you're talking about a reanimated corpse here. But with Bella... Bella Baxter, that he's really, Alistair Gray is really sort of pushing a little further and, and um, into this idea of uh, suspension of disbelief. And I like it because instead of having just a couple of incidents like Paradise Lost or like Learning French, um, that you're sort of like, wait, does that make sense? There's enough of this kind of fantastical stuff happening in Poor Things that you just kind of take it for granted that like all sorts of crazy stuff is happening in this world uh, that we are learning about. So one of them, um, of course, is that like this idea that she has this 25 year old body and she's got this baby brain and that because she has a, a, a an adult body she is able to progress very very quickly so she learns you know how to speak and she learns uh how to walk and she learns how to dance and how to have sex and all of these things much more quickly than like a baby would learn over the course of its lifetime so that's you know kind of improbable but so is the idea of having your own baby's brain transplanted into you uh, she then has these world travels where she decides she needs to go off and 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 sort of explore uh largely sexually um you know sort of motivated she needs to go out and explore the world and these travels are, are kind of fantastical and absurd in a way that I find so compelling and charming. And it's very, there's really good pacing in the novel in the sense that a lot is happening, but it never feels like we're dwelling in one place too long because in fact, she's kind of bopping right along. Um, at one point, she is working in a brothel in France, which is a little bit of a, of a uh, sort of plot point. And she, you know, it's, it's a little bit like a Garcia Marquez thing where she is like, you know, servicing or whatever, um, you know, hundreds of men in one night, that kind of thing, where you have this idea almost of a magic realism. But again, you're kind of happy to suspend disbelief. She is um, traveling around with uh, a guy whose name is totally escaping me. It's not her eventual husband, Archibald McCandless. It's this other guy. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm, I can't think of his name. Anyway, I can't. Um, and he's the Mark Ruffalo character in the movie. And as they're traveling around, he um, is totally exhausted by all of her sexual desires. And because she's keeping him up all night because she wants to have sex with him all the time. So she develops the ability to sleep with her eyes open and to sleep while they are traveling around. So she can walk around and she can have conversations and whatnot all while she's asleep, which is obviously not possible. So again, the, the point here is that there's lots of fantastical elements here that are um, are, are sort of an, like a, an evolution of how we are meant to suspend disbelief from the very beginning of the piece of work. 
But again, you need to ask this question, so what? Each one of these elements, like this, the sort of absurdity that, um, you know, this guy who she's traveling around with, we'll call him Mark Ruffalo. When she's traveling around with Mark Ruffalo, Bella Baxter, um, he, you know, she, this idea that her sexual appetites are so, um, like, so insane that he is basically kind of run ragged by them. Again, this is that kind of sexual fantasy thing that I'm a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I really love this because it seems like a very sort of male concept. But when we're looking at the things like the times when we are meant to suspend our disbelief, there is going to be some sort of point to them. And in that case, it's that, you know, he's really promoting this idea that women's sexual desire is natural and it is positive and women, you know, want pleasure as much as men do, which, you know, it's a little bit debatable. Um, but it is a, um, it, it, when he is doing, the, the, the times when he is asking us to suspend our disbelief, it's important to get a sense of like, what is the broader message behind that? Um, I want to look at page 251. So the bulk of the book, of course, is this, you know, is this book that Michael Donnelly found that is by Archibald McCandless. But then um, we have what is, in fact, a real surprise to the reader. We finish this story that is written by Archibald McCandless about the love of his life, Bella Baxter. And then we have this, a letter from Victoria McCandless, M.D., to her eldest surviving descendant correcting episodes from the early life of a Scottish public health officer by her late husband, Archibald McCandless, MD. So, you know, I'm assuming that you have read the book, but this is now we have a letter that is from someone named Victoria McCandless, who is in fact Bella Baxter. She is like the married version of Bella Baxter. But it was such a shock to me to get to this. I was like, wait, Okay, suddenly Bella Baxter, whose story we have just heard and we've been so involved in and we suspended our disbelief and we really got on board with the whole idea of, of her being this kind of, um, you know, this creature that was put together from uh, mortal remains. Um, and, and then we have this letter from her that is like, actually, wait, I'm going to have to correct everything that my husband Archibald just said. That was all a fiction that was made up by my husband and, and sort of like, um, you know, presented to the world in the guise of, of actual fact. Then the whole story shifts again and you're like, wait, is it true? Is it not true? Alistair Gray really does sort of lead us in one direction, which I found very satisfying. Um, but we do, um, we, it's such a great kind of topsy-turvy thing. Apparently in the movie, they do not do this kind of second switch, which I think is very interesting. And it makes sense to me. I, I think it would be a very long movie and maybe like a little bit tedious if there were so many sort of twists and reversals. I want to take a look at five different short uh, little paragraphs, little passages, because there's so, so, so many things I want to touch on, and um, we're not going to have time for me to talk about all the things I want to cover. So I want to talk about five things. They are uh, the language, the way that, that Alistair Gray is using language, both for Bella, but then more broadly in the novel. Um, then the... Oh, feminism. I want to talk a little bit about the, the sort of portrayal of women as being really very strong. I then want to talk about this kind of fantasy, this kind of like fantastical element. I want to talk about the plot and the way that Alistair Gray is really creating a lot of intrigue. And then finally, just to look at how gorgeous the prose is. So we're going to look at those five elements sort of briefly, and then we will talk about the close of the novel. So the first thing I want to do is talk a little bit about the language in the novel 
it is so inventive and so fun and so free and just like so exuberant and beautiful and rich. It's absolutely, it's just, it's just stunning. Part of the fun that we have, or that we, as the reader, that we experience uh, because of Alistair Gray's incredible inventiveness is simply Bella learning language. So she, in the beginning, when Bella has first met Archibald McCandless, who is um, like a like a mentee of Godwin Baxter, who is the one who created her, she says the following: "A whole quarter century of my life has vanished, crash, bang, wallop." So the few wee memories in this hollow bell, tinkle, clink, clank, clatter, rattle, clang, gong, ring, dong, ding, sound, resound, resonate, detonate, vibrate, reverberate, echo, re-echo around this poor empty skull in words, 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 that try to make up much of little but cannot. It's so fun. It is also very Lewis Carroll. This is like that whole sort of nonsense idea, Lewis Carroll being um, the writer of, of Alice in Wonderland, um, the sunny, sunlit Alice in Wonderland. But here we have this very inventive language that is so fun to read. It's fantastical, it's interesting, but we have this um, approach to language that, that Bella is em embodying in a way that I find absolutely delightful. Okay, then we're gonna look on page 238. So on 238, we have um, another example of this kind of exuberant language uh, that Bella uses. So this is when um, her, there's, oh my gosh, there's so many twists and turns in the plot. At one point, she's about to marry McCandless and, and these men stand up and say, actually, this marriage cannot happen because Bella Baxter is already married to someone else. It's such a shock um, and it's so exciting. And you just are like, wait, what? And then it gets really, um, really dramatic. So she is then confirmed confronting this man who claims to be uh, her husband. Then between bursts of laughter, she cried aloud, General Sir Aubrey de la Pole, Spankybot VC, how funny. Most brothel customers are quick squirts, but you were the quickest of the lot. I think the rottenest thing about you, apart from the killing you've done and the way you treat servants, is what Prickett calls the purity of your m -m marriage bed. Fuck off, you poor, daft, silly, queer, rotten old fucker. Ha, 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 fuck off. So I love that whole thing. Um, you know, I'm very fond of, of uh, the F word. And then there's this little space break and we have the reaction of uh, her fiance, uh, McCandless. I drew my breath in sharp. I have since been told that only in English is the word for bodily loving, whether used as a noun, verb, or adjective, an evil, unmentionable word. Yet Baxter now smiled as if at a magic word solving all our problems. So what I love here is not only this exuberance, but also this idea that power, that language has so much power. You know, here she's talking about the word fuck is the, the, the sort of, you know, what, what is so appalling to her past, you know, quote unquote husband, that, that he's sort of so off put by what she has says, said that, that he is really having second thoughts about wanting to reunite with her. So I love this idea, not only that language is used to make this incredible tale and to really help us kind of, um, you know, figure out that line between fact and fiction, but then we have this incredible, um, like, uh, illustration of how powerful, powerful, powerful language can be. I just love it. It's so, so well done. Okay, so that is our discussion of language. We're now going to move on uh, to talk about 
Oh, women. So there's some really um, outspoken parts that I want to just touch on very quickly about women and the, and the strength of women. But it's important to remember, too, that so many of the elements of feminism in the novel our, um, are, are just, you know, it's just essentially like what Bella Baxter does and who she is and her actions and her, um, you know, the things that she says. It's not only Bella Baxter who is embodying and who is illustrating and who is stating the, the sort of more feminist tones and notes of the novel. Um, in this case, Godwin Baxter, who is the one who creates her, is talking about uh, the strength of women. On page 66, he says, Many lives and limbs have been lost, McCandless, by excluding women from the more intricate medical arts. So again, you have lots of these kinds of very sort of factual and very kind of um, clear statements about the capacity of women. Then right across on page 67, he pointed out that the House of Commons was debating a bill to let married women keep their own property. I told him that bill would never be made law. It would undermine the institution of marriage, and most MPs were husbands. So we have this sense of, uh, you know, Godwin Baxter, who is the one who is essentially informing um, Bella and sort of training her and, and giving her her first sort of, um, you know, push out into the world. He, in fact, really does believe uh, in the strength of women. So in the letter um, by, at the end by Victoria McCandless, which is essentially sort of um, pushing up against and arguing against this big long book by her husband, uh, Archibald McCandless, she's talking about um, a time when this, this very important medical um, mentor for her, uh, Godwin Baxter, when she finds out that he is very sick and she wants to in fact save his life. And she says, then I will become a doctor on the world's account, I declared between sobs. I will save some people's lives, if not yours. I will replace you. I will become you. That is a good idea, Victoria, he said gravely. And if you hold to it, your studies shall be directed that way. So I love this because, um, again, this is a very good example of, of Godwin Baxter as really affirming the fact that women should be doctors. And then I love this even more. He goes on to say the following. But I would first like to see you equipped with a useful husband, an efficient, unselfish one who will help you do what you want while satisfying your amorous instincts. They have been terribly starved. So there, here is again maybe that male fantasy about how women are just like, you know, these sex-starved creatures. But I also really love the fact here that what he's saying is like, you need a wife. Like if you're going to become a doctor, you need someone who is unselfish and who can sort of handle all of the domesticity and who can keep you sexually satisfied. And in fact, Archibald McCandless essentially becomes exactly that. And Bella Baxter it sort of acknowledges him as such, sort of acknowledges that, that he is very much like a wife. He is raising their three boys and, um, you know, keeping her sexually satisfied and is, you know, keeping the home fires burning while she is out saving lives as a doctor. So you have this absolute reversal certainly of the Victorian attitude toward, um, you know, women and work and who should stay at home and, you know, the private versus the public and the domestic versus the professional. So it's this really interesting um, um, sort of illustration of, of those kind of standards being turned upside down. It's so good. Okay. So we've talked about language and feminism. Now we are going to talk about this fantasy element very, very briefly. 
And again, it's important to ask, so what in each of these cases? So um, we have on page 231, a really good illustration of this kind of fantastical stuff. This is again, when um, Bella is being confronted by, she, she um, can't remember anything before her brain transplant. So when her husband shows up, she does not recognize him and is sort of being filled in by this, uh, by these gentlemen who are accompanying her uh, supposed husband. And she is um, sort of reacting to all of this information that is given to her. Her flesh had shrunk so close to the bones that her figure was now angular, but the horriblest change was in her face. The white sharp nose, hollow cheeks, and sunken eye sockets showed the skull all too clearly, yet within the sockets, each black pupil had expanded to fill the whole eye, leaving just a tiny wee triangle of white in the corners. Her dark curling mass of hairs had also expanded, for the first inch of each one stood straight out from the head like quills upon the fretful porcupine. I did not doubt that before me stood the emaciated form of Lady Victoria Blessington, exactly as she had emerged from the coal cellar. But her voice, though sad, was distinctly Bella's. I feel how that poor thing felt, she said, but it will not madden me. So we have this amazing thing where she is sort of transforming herself physically into this wife of this guy who she no longer sort of has the essence of this person, but she has this incredible empathy. So it's this um, underscoring in this very fantastical way of Bella's ability to empathize, which is such a really, um, it's such an interesting and innovative way to do this. I just really, um, it, you know, this is just one small example of all of the ways that these fantastical elements are really delivering some important insights. Okay, um, I want to then talk about the plot and intrigue. So there are so many spots in this book where you just are like, oh my gosh, wait, what is happening now? I mean, the story just keeps twisting and twisting on itself. And um, we read before the little bit from the beginning of Victoria McCandless's version of all of this, where she's basically like, my husband didn't know what he was talking about. That was just like a novel that he wrote. So you have these really um, sort of formally interesting um, ways that, that the story is sort of um, going back and forth in a way that's really toying um, with your, your sense of, of truth and fiction and your sense of um, you know, disbelief or belief. It's really very powerful. Okay, and then last but not least, uh, I wanna look at the prose very quickly before we go to the close of the novel. On page 240, this is the end essentially of um, Archibald McCandless's uh, manuscript. On page 240, it's chapter 24, Goodbye. They're really excellent chapter titles. I sometimes forget them. Um, I just was gonna dive in and didn't even look at it just then. It is kind of ironic too that this goodbye um, is the part about their marriage because in fact, uh, you know, we're gonna hear more about that soon from Victoria herself. Reader, she married me, and I have little more to tell you. Our family prospers happily. Our public work is useful and noticed as such. Dr. Archibald McCandless is chairman of the Glasgow Civic Improvement Trust. Dr. Bella McCandless, through her management of the Godwin-Baxter Natal Clinic, her Fabian pamphlets, and her promotion of female suffrage, has been invited to speak on platforms in nearly all the European capitals. 
So again, he is, um, you know, he's just kind of like fading into the background. He's a chairman, so he's not really working anymore uh, at the uh, clinic, at the Civic Improvement Trust. Uh, but she is, in fact, doing all of these, you know, these uh, incredibly important things, both for medicine and for women's suffrage. And uh, for the Fabian Society is essentially like a socialist kind of arm. And then down at the bottom, um, we have this. When my wife's friends at the Glasgow Arts Club twit me with my wife's greater fame, I have a ready reply. One famous McCandless is enough for any family. I believe our sons find their stolid father a welcome counterpoise to their brilliant, unconventional mother. I believe their mother finds me that too. She is the swelling sail, trim rigging, and busy sunlit deck of our matrimonial yacht. I am the low hull with the invisible ballast and keel. This metaphor greatly contents me. It's so gorgeous. I mean, I am just in awe of Alistair Gray's ability to combine this incredible structure, this fantastical element, um, all of these different intricate kind of twists and turns, and then such gorgeous prose. I'm going to read it again. She is the swelling sail, trim rigging, and busy sunlit deck of our matrimonial yacht. I am the low hull with the invisible ballast and keel. This metaphor greatly contents me. It's so beautiful. You guys also know that I am really picky about my figurative language and I have very high expectations for metaphor and simile. And this is just an absolutely beautiful, beautiful uh, piece of prose. Unbelievable. Okay, so now we are going to close by taking a look uh, at a few at the very beginning of the book, um, just one quick element, and then uh, a few of the elements toward the end. So part of what we're doing when we're looking at these last elements is um, is sort of sorting out for ourselves what it is that Alistair Gray wants us to believe. Like, is he kind of, you know, as the editor, is he more in line with this idea that uh, that she is an animated corpse or is he more in line with the idea that she, in fact, is just a normal woman with a husband who wrote a fantastical uh, book? This is the end of the prologue. So this is Alistair Gray, our editor, talking. Michael Donnelly has told me he would find the above evidence more convincing if I had obtained official copies of the marriage and death certificates and photocopies of the newspaper reports. But if my readers trust me, I do not care what an expert thinks. So we have this here. I like the specificity of that too. You know, all of this evidence that is needed. That's the kind of detail that adds like credibility. So at the end of this prologue, at the beginning of the book, we're a little bit suspicious that this isn't maybe like true, but we're also willing to indulge our editor in part because, you know, he's the one who we see as the authority figure because he is ostensibly putting together all of these documents. So on page 244, we have the following. This is the very, very end of the, uh, the, the book, like the bulk of this book that is written uh, supposedly by uh, Archibald McCandless. This is after the death of Godwin Baxter, who is uh, the one who was responsible for the reanimating of the corpse. A moment later, I stepped over and trying hard not to peer into the huge tooth-edged cavity which gaped so horribly at the ceiling, discovered his neck was broken and that rigor mortis had instantly ensued. Rather than break his joints in order to lay him out flat, I ordered a cubical coffin four and a half feet wide with a shelf inside on which he was placed, sitting. 
He sits like that to the present day, under the floor of the mausoleum Sir Colin acquired in the necropolis overlooking Glasgow Cathedral and Royal Infirmary. In due course, I and my wife, who was very upset by his death, will join him there, and so can all our children and grandchildren if they make room for themselves by getting cremated. I think that is so funny. They, I mean, again, there is a certain levity and a certain gallows humor that we see throughout the entire novel. But this idea of um, if they can get themselves cremated, like if they can make themselves small enough, they're also welcome to join us. But we also, um, importantly, we have a little more anatomy here, this this sketch of uh, more, you know, bones. But we also, at the end, in these notes, historical and uh, critical, we have a, an, an image of um of the necropolis in glasgow so there is a certain um you know when you haven't these are also all of my notes those of you who can see um on the youtube channel this is like how i go about this whole thing i make little notes in the back and then i jot down all the page numbers um but here we have this image of, of something that really exists so there is this idea like just like human nature is such that you're like okay well if they're talking about glasgow and there is this like actual um you know necropolis there then like okay probably so there's there's a certain amount of levity and humor but it's also so compelling this idea that um you know that, that you have this real devotion on the part of this uh you know younger doctor toward his mentor but also these facts um, th that are so specific that you really start to believe what it is he is saying okay so um and then on page 276 just as um, with the many different beginnings that we looked at in the very beginning of this talk, we also have several different endings. So what I just read was sort of the ending of the, the main book, the sort of bulk of this, uh, this volume that I hold in my hand here, um, which is the story by Archibald McCandless. But then we have another sort of ending, which is another close to another section of the book, which is Victoria McCandless's uh, letter that essentially says, I'm not a reanimated corpse. That's just a, a sort of a folly on the part of my husband. But we have what is a very poignant and, and really excellent uh, ending to her letter because it is um, the, the letter is ending in 1914, which is sort of the eve of World War I and these cataclysmic changes that are coming soon for all of Europe. And we have this very um, really beautiful instance of dramatic irony here, which is simply that as readers, we have more information than the uh, characters in the book. So this Victoria McCandless has no idea that World War I, well, she probably has some idea because of what I'm about to read, but she does not know the kind of extent of the World Wars uh, and all of the terrible destruction that they are about to bring. So um, we have this ending to her letter that I found so poignant and moving. And so, dear grand or great-grandchild, my thoughts turn to you because I cannot possibly imagine the world in which this message will be read, if it is ever read. So then, for um, a woman who is really not very maternal and, and has really dedicated herself to her professional pursuits and in fact feels a little bit guilty about not having been more present for her three sons, it's very fitting that she, she sort of can't quite imagine these, these you know, um, children who will one day be her legacy. She can't imagine the world that they will be living in in 1976. 
And in fact, it's 1992 that this volume has supposedly come together. Um, but, but we have down at the bottom what I think is a very fitting uh, sort of goodbye that she says, because it is very political and there's a lot of um, political stuff and a lot of socialist thinking in here. So um, we have the beginning of the paragraph when she's like, uh, you know, talking, addressing herself to these great grandchildren. And then she says, Glasgow is an exciting place for a dedicated socialist. Even in its early liberal phase, it set the world an example through the municipal development of public resources. But the international socialist movement is as strong in Germany as it is in Britain. The labor and trade union leaders in both countries have agreed that if their governments declare war, they will immediately call a general strike. I almost hope our military and capitalistic leaders do declare war. If the working classes immediately halt it by peaceful means, then the moral and practical control of the great industrial nations will have passed from the owners to the makers of what we need, and the world you live in, dear child of the future, will be a saner and happier place. Bless you, Victoria McCandless, MD, 18 Park Circus, Glasgow, 1st August, 1914. So I love this because again, I mean, obviously socialism has some real problems in terms of like actual practical application, but at this late, um, you know, late stage capitalist moment here, we are really, uh, you know, dealing with some incredible disparities and certainly, you know, this, this sort of peaceful reckoning did not happen with World War I and things have gotten sort of progressively, I mean, wow, the moment we are living in right now, people, is not, you know, it's not great. I hate to add to that whole kind of narrative, but it is not the world that uh, this fictive Victoria McCandless was hoping it would be for her great, great grandchildren. Okay, so I want to, um, I love it. I love that as an ending, though. I find it so compelling and so strong. And I want to finish um, at the very end uh, on 317. This is sort of the very last page of the book before we have the image of the necropolis. This is the, the very end of the, the notes, historical and critical. Importantly, this is a letter that is also from uh, Victoria McCandless. So it's sort of a different, uh, it, it's, it's allowing her to actually have the final word in a way that I find really compelling and excellent. If you have skimmed through even a paragraph of my poor neglected little magnum opus, you will know I'm unusually acquaint with my inner workings. No wonder I was introduced to them by a genius. A cerebral hemorrhage will release me from this mortal coil in early December. And then we, we go down to the bottom. There's a, um, you know, she then signs off. Sincerely, Victoria McCandless. And then down a little bit further. Dr. Victoria McCandless was found dead of a cerebral stroke on 3rd December 1946. Reckoning from the birth of her brain in the Humane Society Mortuary on Glasgow Green, 18th February, 1880, she was exactly 66 years, 40 weeks, and four days old. Reckoning from the birth of her body in a Manchester slum in 1854, she was 92. I love this. I found this so satisfying because here, I mean, we have like, if we are astute readers and we get all the way to the end of these notes, uh, historical and critical, we have Alistair Gray coming down um, on the side, essentially, our editor, on the side of the idea of this reanimated corpse. Because, of course, we have this body that's 92 years old, but we have uh, this brain, which is 66 years old. I don't even know if I did that math right. And I heard those numbers like one second ago. But 
we have this idea here of Alistair Gray saying, yes, this is in fact what happened. Like, this is not just a woman. Um, it is in fact someone who was reanimated because in the, in the sort of very, very last word in the final reckoning of this entire volume, what we have here is our editor telling us that, that this is a, a being who essentially had a body that was one age and a brain that was the other. I was so happy that Alistair Gray was going to sort of come down one way or the other because we we suspend our disbelief and we really get like really onto um, you know the side of Bella Baxter and we're so excited about her and being with McCandless and we're really enjoying that whole entire volume only to have it kind of turned upside down by Victoria McCandless herself. And ultimately, I think we are maybe meant to believe, given this very last chunk, that she sort of protests too much or that she is wanting to, um, you know, really sort of uh, normalize what is a pretty incredible story, which is her origin story told by her husband. So I hope that you have really gotten a lot out of this discussion. I love this book. And again, I'm so kind of weirded out by the fact that The Feast and Poor Things and this Daniel Mason book are these incredibly intricate, complex, really compelling structures that are this real sort of um, polyphony, like these, all of these voices and all of these different elements uh, that are really playing formally and inventively with the novel. It's just an absolute dream, and I'm really enjoying reading them in succession. So I'm hoping that um, if you've only read Poor Things, that you go check out The Feast, which is so, so good, or uh, Daniel Mason's uh, Northwoods. So thank you very much for tuning in and for sticking with me during this long discussion, and uh, I hope that you will head back to the Fox page, and happy reading. <laughs>